Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking to Sharon Browse, the senior and founding rabbi of the Los Angeles congregation, ECAR. Today, we talk about the financial challenges of running a synagogue, how women are faring in Jewish institutions, and how to manage difficult rabbis. Thanks so much for being here, Rabbi Browse. Thank you for having me. So what are you in charge of? So we started a community here in Los Angeles called Ikar in the spring of 2004. And over the course of the last 15 years, it's grown into a really hearty community of about 650 families or individual household units. Um, pretty sizable budget and and with, a, with an impact on the broader Jewish community and hopefully also on the broader religious community beyond the boundaries of the Jewish community as well. I'm guessing most listeners have kind of a general idea of what a rabbi does, and it might be wrong, but rabbis lead services, rabbis preside over life cycle events. Uh, But how would you describe your job? So it's a really interesting combination of of one-on-one work, um, really working with individuals in the community to help discern individual spiritual paths. I just saw a few moments ago a woman who was working through the grief of after the loss of her beloved son, um, being present with people at, at really powerful moments in their lives, uh, moments of life and death and everything in between. And I think that's actually the most sacred responsibility of being a rabbi, um, being invited into those, those really private moments uh, and intimate moments with people to help find holiness and find a sense of connectedness. And then there's a lot of communal work, which is really thinking about and imagining what might be possible when we bring the best of ourselves together. How do we hold each other, love each other, um, support one another in difficult times, dance together in times of wonder? How do we walk through really sometimes tumultuous and, and right now really, frankly, perilous times for our country and for the world? And then the the next circle out is really thinking more systematically about the bigger systems that we as people in faith communities are connected to. So what does it mean to take an ancient tradition and search for the wisdom from that tradition that helps us understand what it means to be alive in the world today? And who are the other individuals and other communities that we need to be in relationship with as we engage this work today? And so we're really dancing from the most local to the most global and back every hour. And that's part of what makes the work so incredible. And it's part of what makes what I think makes many clergy so tired. We're both at the bedside and also, you know, on the national platform trying to articulate a sense of what might be possible in the broadest sense. Are those things always compatible? Like someone who's good at uh, the first part of the job is necessarily great at the the second and third? I would say not usually. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's challenging. And some people build rabbinate or build their, you know, their, their clergy, their ministry based on the things that they're really drawn to and that they're really good at. So I, I know that there are certain clergy that in my time of need, I want by my bedside to k- kind of help me find the strength again and find some hope and faith. Um, those people are not necessarily the folks that you would look to for a kind of moral leadership on the on the big stage. It's not always, those things aren't always found in the same folks. When they are, it's very special. Let me rewind. Why are you a rabbi? 
<laughs> so, um, well, you know, I, I didn't grow up with a with a strong sense of religiosity or faith. I was deeply connected to my Jewish identity, but without a really strong sense of what that actually meant. And I was always a person who was who really cared about the world. I, I was an empath, and I would cry reading the newspaper and. You know, I was a I was a a little kid trying to figure out how to change the world and how to fix what was broken. But the faith community and the faith journey really had nothing to do with that for me. Um, some of this started to change when I was in college, and I went through a whole journey of alienation from my own Jewish community and my own tradition, and then kind of finding my way back into conversation and communication with my tradition right around the same time that I encountered the story of the Exodus from Egypt, which is really the, the core story and the core driver of the Hebrew Bible, which I realized was actually a story of redemption, a story of a people who live under, um, under incredible oppression for hundreds of years with no sense that anything will ever change and then are led into freedom. And most of the Torah I came to understand is actually the journey from slavery to freedom and from darkness to light. And it began to occur to me that the reason that people like Dr. Martin Luther King, for example, took so much strength and inspiration from the story of the Israelites leaving slavery in Egypt was because this is really a timeless story. And it's about not only people and nations on their eternal quest for freedom and for human dignity, but it's also about every individual on our own personal journeys from darkness to light and from narrowness to expansiveness. And as I started to have that realization, I realized that I actually wanted to dedicate my life to, to helping other people find a sense of comfort and consolation and a sense of healing and also a sense of possibility and obligation. Um, in their own individual lives and in our collective story, that 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 history wasn't meant to just unfold randomly, but that we had to take some responsibility in helping it unfold in the direction of more dignity and and more human freedom. And so, for me to become a to become a rabbi was was my way of kind of putting a stake in the ground. Um, not only establishing that our Jewish tradition could still be profoundly relevant for us, but also that, that that our tradition had something to say about how we had to live and act and be most human in times when that was really challenged most greatly. And how has it uh, not been as you expected it to be? It's been a really interesting journey. We actually established this community, Ikar, when I was 29 years old. So to say that I didn't really know what I was doing when we set out to build the community is an understatement. Um, but I had a sense of what wasn't working in religious life. Um, and I had a sense that there was a reason that young people were fleeing religious institutions. And and I thought if we come with, with goodwill and with an open heart and with a true allegiance to and, and fidelity to the tradition, but also a sense of creativity and moral imagination that we could find our way forward. And that everything has taken me by surprise. Um, I, I wouldn't have imagined that we would be where we are now. Um, and yet the vision was, the vision today is the same as what the vision was when we set out to build the community. Because I really believed that it was possible to build communities of soul and spirit 
even in a time of incredible cynicism and individualism, that we could that we could tap into the ancient rhythms of the Sabbath of Shabbat and help even atheists and people who do not connect to either um, to either the an idea of God or to religious tradition per se, that we could help tap into something core and foundational that could ultimately be transformative in all of our lives. And I think what surprised me is that even though I set out to do it, what surprised me is that it is that it's working, that people are resonating to and responding to this idea of a reinvigorated faith community and religious life and spiritual sense. Um, people are resonating to the idea that the way that we see human beings from a faith perspective ought to have an impact on the way that we live in the world and the way that we work to pursue justice on a daily basis. And so I believed it with everything in my body, but I'm surprised that it's actually taken hold at the same time. So take me through a little bit like the nuts and bolts of what it means to actually start a congregation, like not necessarily the ideas uh, involved, but the like the budgeting and the, what what are, how do you start a congregation? So our community started with a vision statement. It doesn't necessarily usually start this way, if there is a usual way to start things. Um, I was introduced to um, to Melissa Balaban, who was at the time one of the deans of the law school at USC, and a young mother who, in trying to manage the work-life balance, had actually just stepped off of all of her boards and decided she was really going to focus on her job and her kids. And we were introduced by a mutual friend who thought that something magical would happen if we found each other. And and it did. I mean, we, we were um, brought into conversation with one another. And I actually shared with Melissa and with her husband, Adam, and with a small group um, that had gathered in order for us to have this meeting about what I thought to be possible in religious life. And it was very big. You asked me for the kind of concrete. When we started, it was with a big idea, which essentially was we are living through a time in which religious in which religion is increasingly defined by extremism and hatred and violence on one hand, and then a kind of dullness and routinism on the other hand, which is our contemporary religious institutions, our churches and synagogues, which were established on 20th century models that no longer spoke to the hearts and minds of a lot of young people. And what I believed we needed to do was really reclaim a prophetic voice um, in which people would experience a sense of wonder and joy and excitement and could grieve together and dance together and, and work to make this country and the world a more just place. And Melissa really, and, and, and this core group really resonated very much to those ideas and had similarly felt a great dissatisfaction with religious institutions as they were, and wondered if it would be possible to build, to build the kind of community that we'd all want to be a part of. And so it started with a vision statement. I remember Melissa said to me that night, um, go home and write down everything you just said to us tonight. And I went home and we wrote down a vision statement. And then we sent it out, each of us, to 10 friends. So it went out to about 40 or 50 people initially. And it said essentially what I just what I just shared with you, that we believed that it was possible for religion and for our Jewish community to be different than it was. Um, and that we yearned for it and hungered for it and we were, we were willing to see if we could make it happen. 
And then we we asked if people were interested to come and meet with us on Friday night and we would have our first Shabbat service together just to see if people were resonating to that to that quest and that vision. It was first going to be in my living room, which would seat about eight to ten people. And so at the last minute, we got nervous and we borrowed um, an actor's studio from a friend of a friend, and we set up a we set up a couple dozen um, folding chairs. And we really thought that maybe 20 or 30 people would come. Most of them would be directly related to me. Um, and 135 people came and we were completely floored. We just could not believe, but people resonated to the words. They wanted to believe, this was the spring of 2004, they wanted to believe in something bigger than themselves. And I think they wanted, they wanted a way to make some sense out of the madness that we were living through and to connect to each other and to connect to a deeper sense of purpose. And so when that happened, when when all those people showed up and we had this incredible first gathering together and there were a lot of tears and it was really meaningful and powerful. And I had this strong sense that it was the right moment. We had no business plan, we had no money, we had no space. And I felt that if I didn't try this, I would regret it for the rest of my life. Um, I also, by the way, had a six-month-old baby at the time, and our health insurance for for my husband and me and for my baby was through my job, my day job, and my husband is a writer, and so it was a big risk, and we felt we were pretty scared, and a, and a colleague, a friend of mine who kind of became an advisor said to me, you know what, you'll try it for six months, and if it doesn't work out, someone will hire you because you took the risk and you were willing to try um, but I have a feeling it's going to work out. And so I gave notice to my job um, on Monday morning, and I said I'd finish out the school year. I was working as a, I, I was working as a rabbi in a school, and we were going to set out to do this. So at that point, we didn't know anything about 501c3, about how to build a board, how to make a budget. But it, we had a lot of smart people around the table, and we worked our way through it and, and kind of figured it out piece by piece. And for me, one of the challenges from the beginning was that there wasn't really a model that we could tap into because what we were doing was trying to create a new model. And we knew that there was a model that a lot of people had rejected, which we didn't want to replicate, but there was also a lot of good in the models that had been rejected. So we wanted to take elements that worked and then reimagine elements that that needed to be reimagined and see if we could really build something that would be different in the world. So I belong to, I'd say, a fairly traditional reform synagogue. And I know even from the kind of um, spectrum of people that that belong there, you kind of uh, hold your breath at the rabbi sermon that, uh, you know, I'm looking for our rabbi to say something um, to be outspoken against Trump or to be outspoken against uh, Netanyahu. Um, but other people in the synagogue probably aren't, and everyone's sort of trying to walk that line. But you've purposely created a place that's for everyone. It doesn't matter how religious or traditional you are, who you're married to, what your connection to Judaism is, probably how you feel about Israel. That, to me, is really beautiful, but it also sounds extremely complicated to run a place with congregants whose attachments and beliefs and backgrounds and political views and spiritual needs might vary so widely. Like, what what are the challenges there? Well, I would say we have a very diverse community in terms of religious practice and belief. So, the deans of um, of all of the non orthodox day of not all of the non orthodox rabbinical schools in Los Angeles 
come to Ikar. And I love that. They're there on Shabbat, the Reform and the Conservative, and one extraordinary rabbi who was ordained as an Orthodox rabbi from Yeshiva University. They're all they're all there at Ikar. Um, and at the same time, there are people who are totally secular, um, who who are proud atheists. Um, we have, I mentioned earlier, Melissa Balban, who is the co-founder with me of the community, her husband, Adam, who wrote a piece that kind of went viral a couple years ago about being an atheist who goes to synagogue every Shabbos. And, uh, and it really resonated with a lot of people because he said God's not the reason that he goes to synagogue, that he's there because it's his community and because he feels moved by it and because he's engaged in a larger conversation. So there's a tremendous amount of diversity in terms of faith, religious practice. We have people who are, you know, will walk uh, miles to get to synagogue because they won't drive on Shabbat. And then we have people who will eat a bacon maple donut for breakfast and then come into services. And I love that. And we've worked very hard to cultivate that kind of diversity. I will tell you there's not a lot of diversity on political perspective in the community because the foundations of the community, and it really is a self-selecting group, but we have established from the beginning that we believe that to be a Jew in the world means that we will fight for human dignity, for love, for freedom, and for justice. And for people for whom those feel like alien values, or they think it's a distortion of Jewish tradition to talk about those things, they're not gonna resonate very much to the way that we operate in the community. And so as a result, we have, and, and that doesn't mean that everybody's gonna vote the same way um, on every issue, but it does mean that there's essentially a core principle um, that stands at the heart of the community. And people, also very much believe that I, as the rabbi of the community and my rabbinic colleagues, and we now have a rabbinic team of four here, um, that we should speak our conscience and they want us to, they want us to speak our deepest truth, even if that's something that makes them profoundly uncomfortable. And so this is not a community in which I will hold back from offering whatever criticism I believe needs to be offered, um, whether it's of a politician, whether it's of uh, a policy in the state of Israel, um, whether it's of colleagues and, and, and allies and friends in the work here on the ground. And our community really supports that and, and I believe really wants to be in a space where we're able to speak openly and honestly and also with compassion and love about where the brokenness is in our society and what needs to be done in order, in order for us to be able to begin to fix it. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about the management parts of your job. How many people report directly to you and, and what do those people do? So we have about 23 full-time folks working um, in the organization now, and then a lot of, not including our teachers, um, who are working on a separate site, but we have an early childhood center um, with, with many teachers there as well. Um, the people who report directly to me now in our current um, organizational model are the rabbinic team and our music director, and I, it, 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 we've worked to develop a shared leadership model in which um, Melissa Balaban, who I mentioned earlier, is now the CEO of the organization, and she oversees the operational and programmatic side of, of the work of the organization, and I oversee um, the rabbinic side, and we are in... Um, we're in direct communication with each other about really every aspect of the work of the community. 
and so, and the organization. And so she will oversee um, and directly manage se- the the head of the development department and program. And I will oversee the rabbinic uh, the rabbinic department, which also is um, which also oversees all of the educational endeavors in the community. So what are you looking for when you hire a rabbi and what's what is that process like? So with our whole team um, and and certainly with our rabbinic team, we're looking for the best possible people who we can get for the job. And this past year we hired a new um, we hired a new rabbi and I called one of my colleagues to ask if he had any recommendations of people that we should reach out to. And he said, well, that depends. Do you want someone to fill the role or do you want a rock star? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, some places they're really looking for someone who's not going to challenge the system very much. They want somebody um, who's going to play nicely and fit into a particular role, but not be bigger than he or she, you know, ought to be in that role. And I said, I really want somebody who's going to shine brightly. And I I feel like the success of the organization in some ways has been that we have exceptional people coming here and I I really want the best people in every field. And so what I, what I say to my rabbinic team is I want to create the space for your light to shine as brightly as it possibly can with an awareness that you are part of an ecosystem of other bright shining lights. And so there can't be one light that's kind of outshining everybody here. Um, but I, I want I want to do whatever I can to push you to be the very best version of yourself. That's true with our rabbinic hires, but that's also true with every person that we hire in the organization at all levels. Um, we really want people who have um, who who align with the vision of the organization, who have a kind of soul connection with us, people who we really want to work with and be in partnership with. And people who who are able to shine brightly and who we can help, who I can help, um, offer their best, bring their best selves into the work. So I can look at a writer and know, you know, how many eyeballs they attracted to their work and how much impact their pieces are having and how much they're producing, like volume wise for Slate every month or year. They're like really concrete ways, although some things are very abstract, there are very concrete ways that I can measure the people who report to me. What are the concrete ways you can measure and evaluate spiritual leaders? It's not as easy to measure yeah. um, to, to measure the success of a, of a rabbi because it's not about how many likes they get on a Facebook post that they put out. And in fact, we, we're, I'm specifically not looking for somebody who's, um, who's most concerned with those um, with those mechanisms. And uh, there are rabbis who are and clergy who are and who, you know, who spend more time on social media than they spend with actual humans. It's So it's much harder to gauge. But what I'm looking for is not only a depth of wisdom and knowledge, but also an ability to communicate and share that with love and with humility. And so, uh, and that you can tell. <laughs> you You can tell it when you see it. Um, and when you hear it. So our tradition, which is 4,000 years of layer upon layer of voices of people yearning for to, to, to access a deeper truth, is essentially this untapped resource for, uh, for a generation of people who are desperately seeking wisdom. So can our, can our rabbis and can our leaders in this organization help give access to that inheritance to the people who might not even know that that's what they're looking for, but in their hearts are really yearning for it. And can they do it with love and humility? You can't necessarily calculate it. 
um, with numbers, but you can t- you can feel it when a person opens their mouth and opens their hearts that they're really speaking from a place of love. And and I will tell you, um, I had one rabbi who worked with us many years ago, um, who was really brilliant and really charismatic. And I said to him after a sermon that he gave one day, I said, if people walk out of this room and they're talking about how brilliant you are and how brilliant your sermon was, you have failed them as a rabbi. Because what we want is to change the way people think about themselves and the world. And, and we are only, a, we, we're only here to help deliver that message. And so I don't want people talking about us when they leave. I want them talking about the Torah that we're bringing, the message that we're helping them access. That's interesting. Is that like a is that a common sort of tension? I imagine people who who become rabbis, they have a true <laughs> spiritual calling and then also, you know, to some degree like to stand in front of people and talk <laughs> um and be heard and be, you know, um uh, listened to. Is that like kind of a workplace issue? Yeah, I mean, you you might be surprised at how many people go into this field who don't actually like other human beings. <laughs> so for us, it's that's really an essential an essential piece of the work. You have to love people to be in this work. You have to love people, and and also because because this is a combination of the the local and the global, the bedside and the big picture. You know, there are a lot of people who think that they want to be prophets. They want to be game changers but they don't actually like people. And I feel that that's a really problematic model um, that we have to actively work against. So I wanna know where their love sits. And if they, and I do believe it, on some level it's an occupational hazard and especially in recent years, there's been a kind of um, celebrity clergy um, thing that started to unfold, particularly with social media, that's not really what we're interested in here. Um, I, I believe that this work is essential and urgent right now, that this work is driven, is rooted in and driven by love. And we don't really have time um, for, for, you know, for, to play those games. So while there may be many people who um, as clergy members start to feel like they're the ones who are, you know, at the center of the story for us in this community, it's really essential that we not get confused like that. What are your strategies for kind of addressing a rabbi who perhaps is not focused in the way you think he or she should be? Well, I think we just have to speak really honestly about it. And I mean, we do uh, we do this through mentorship and we also do it through rabbinic team meetings. We talk we, we try to speak really frankly about what we see going on here. And, you know, there's a lot of ego involved in this work, um, as you're, you're hinting at, um, and, and sometimes it's not hard to see at all. And we just have to constantly remind uh, ourselves and each other that that's not what this is ultimately about. The other side of that is that I also really feel that my job as a manager or mentor or supervisor is to help push um, our team to do the work that they um, that they might not naturally incline toward, but that I believe they're capable of. And so in a way, kind of throwing people into the fire so that they can um, so that they can learn how to hold space when they don't know that they have the ability to hold space. Um, pushing people into environments and experiences that would be terrifying for any of us so that they know that they can. Um, and, and I believe, again, it's a, it's a lot about love and humility. But if we walk into, you know, even the most terrifying of environments, 
um, and we hold love at the center, I believe that we that we find that we're able to offer a tremendous amount of comfort and grace to people in moments when they really need it. So you guys recently announced that you're going to build your own building, which sounds like a huge undertaking. What does that mean for your job specifically? <laughs> My job has definitely shifted over the last six months or so. Um, so we purchased a property um, we are, LA is one of the most diverse urban centers in the world, actually. And it's really, I've come to really love this city. And we are working to build right now, not only a home for the ECAR community, where we'll have our prayer services and our learning and our and our school, but also to build a platform for multi-faith justice work, which our community is already deeply involved in and which we desperately need um, to to even deepen our involvement in, and so um, so we are embarking on a large capital campaign. Um, my job has shifted because I have to, as any <laughs> and as anyone will tell you, with a capital campaign, you have to it, about fifty percent of what's on your plate you can't touch again for a couple of years, um, and you you end up doing really focusing your efforts toward. Um, toward raising the funds and and then working through dreaming the dreams about the space that we're going to be building together. So, um, you know, I spent many, many hours um, in the architect search committees, things that you don't think about when you're a justice warrior who goes to rabbinical school because you feel like faith can have some impact on helping move the world from where it is to where it ought to be. But choosing an architect, budgeting for the capital campaign, hiring a development team, working with donors to try to bring them on board with the vision and hear what their vision is and see where there's alignment. All of these pieces are very new for me in the course of the last uh, half a year. And I'll be very much in this space for the next couple of years as well, which is part of the reason that it's so important to me that we have such a strong rabbinic team because it's really, I, I, I am not the only rabbinic presence in the community, but the reason that people come and the reason that they're committed to the organization and to what we're doing is because, um, is because they feel like the Torah we're offering here actually matters to them. And so that can't be put on hold uh, for several years as we go out to raise the funds and build the building. In fact, it might even be more more urgent than ever uh, in these days as we engage this campaign. So it certainly has shifted over the course of the last um, several months. How do you, I mean, you guys have grown so much and now with this building and raising, I assume having to raise a lot of money for it. How do you keep the same vibe that you had when you founded it? The spirit of the thing, the DNA of the organization is about it's about moral leadership and it's about constantly reimagining the work so that we feel a sense of really fresh connection to it week after week after week. And so I'll just give you an example and I, I feel I mean from a from a spiritual standpoint, I feel that Shabbat, the Sabbath has actually had this transformative effect on my rabbinate. Um, and I had Shabbat in my life for many years before I became a rabbi and before we started Ikar, but I don't I, I don't believe that I ever fully understood how important Shabbat would be to my rabbinate until the work of Ikar actually started. Um, but Shabbat is is for me this um, it's this very powerful pause that we place on our lives so that we can reflect on where we are and dream about where we want to be. And so we're in this constant conversation 
with each other and I and with ourselves about what's working and what's not working. And for me, we, we purposely work to build a Shabbat experience that would that would speak to my spiritual needs and our team's spiritual needs, because this isn't just a gift that we're handing to someone else, but I desperately need this right now because we're doing work that really matters and that takes a lot out of us. And if I can't get my nourishment, then I'm not going to be able to, to continue doing the work. And so while I wouldn't say that I'm great at taking care of myself in other ways, I really take care of myself on Shabbat. I sing until I lose my voice every Friday night. And on Shabbat morning, you know, we will sing and preach and learn until I cry week after week. And we always hit some point of deep and profound um, awareness. And so for me, that's the way that we hold the freshness. Uh, we're constantly reevaluating and um, and reassessing and trying to figure out how can we continue to to speak with the same kind of fervor and the same kind of passion that we spoke that, that we that we spoke with in the early years and how can we continue to see people really see individuals even as we grow as an organization that's really challenging but it's not impossible um, and I feel like Shabbat gives us the opportunity to constantly re-engage that question week after week year after year so listeners who aren't Jewish might not know that traditionally, uh, if you want to join a synagogue, you pay a bunch of money. <laughs> um, I'm married to someone who isn't Jewish, and I remember how shocked he was early on to learn that we had to pay to belong to a synagogue and pay for high holiday tickets if we didn't belong to one. How much do you think that cost keeps young Jews from from joining, even if they can afford it? And how do you like how do you think about synagogue pricing? So when we when we first started the the organization, I I had a pretty strong internal sense that um, that the way that we were engaging this 20th century model of kind of fee for service religious life was failing to both excite um, and attract young people, and was also not the best way to build spiritual community. So there is this sense that. When you come to a community, what is desired about you is is your money. We need your money in order to run the place. And so what I really wanted to build was a community that was based on sacred relationships, not based on a person's ability to write a large check. And at the same time, we recognized that without people writing large checks, we weren't going to be able to run the organization. And so what we tried to do to address this is we built a membership model that is a covenantal relationship, essentially, that we invite people to join. And so some people can come for seven or eight years and not pay a dollar and not join the community. And that's okay. But what we say to people is, if you believe that this ought to exist in the world, if you believe that there ought to be a way of engaging religious life that is fierce and and uh, and and moral and driven and purposeful and fun and beautiful. So then we ask you to step in and be in relationship with us. And once you are, we're going to ask you to make commitments in four different areas. Um, one of them is to help build the community, and that might mean hosting something in your home. Um, and we do a lot of 
you know, wine and cheese or pizza and beer in somebody's home while studying text together um, or talking about big ideas together. Um, or it might mean helping us with the graphic design on our website or helping us build the community in some other way. Number two, that every single person in the community is committed to being on a learning journey, that even the dean of the rabbinical school has more to teach and more to learn in the world. And so we're all committed to engaging in learning and each one of us has individual learning objectives um, every year. Number three, that we will participate in the justice work of the community. And we say, this is not a community in which we're just gonna talk the talk and not take it to the streets. And so if you're part of this community, we expect of you that you are part of the translation of our great Jewish values and ideas into addressing the homeless crisis in in Los Angeles, into addressing what's happening with with asylum seekers and refugees at the border, into work that ranges from direct action to global partnership, um, that you'll be part of that that um, journey. And finally, some kind of financial commitment because we need some money from people in order to run the organization. And what we found is that people are really eager to give money in support of the organization when we frame it this way, that you're supporting an idea that needs to exist in the world and that we're not only asking money of you, that we're asking all kinds of other questions. Of, uh, uh, we're, asking, we're asking for many other things from you, including you know, for your time and for your ideas and for your presence, because that's part of what it means to be in a community. And suddenly it doesn't feel so consumer, so consumerized. It doesn't feel like it's a fee-for-service engagement, but rather we're really entering into real relationship with each other. How much do you identify as a woman rabbi with the emphasis on, on woman? Well, I'll tell you, I, <laughs> um, I remember the moment when I was first invited to give a talk outside of Ikar um, about something that wasn't directly related to gender or feminism or women in our tradition. And I felt like I made it. All of a sudden, I was invited to just be a teacher of Torah. And that it took years to get to that place. Um, and many women rabbis will say that we are just not invited to be in those spaces, to just talk about God. Instead, we're asked to talk about women in the rabbinate or women in religion. But I remember that turning point moment. I also remember the moment that I gave my first sermon in which a man did not say to me afterwards some comment about what I was wearing or about my legs or about my hair. And that also, I think, is really significant here um, because the, it's it's relatively new for women to even be in the rabbinate um, and, and to be in leadership positions of of communities is, is still very rare. Women are still really underrepresented um, in top synagogues across the country, like they are in churches. Um, and, and also, by the way, there is a significant salary gap still between women rabbis and male rabbis who are operating even at, at the same level. Um, and, and so part of what I had, the, I had the gift of building a community from scratch um, and, and establishing what the culture would be in this community and saying women's leadership is leadership. And I will bring to the table everything that I am I, as a young mother, um, as, a, as a woman, as a daughter, but I'm here to teach Torah and that, that's what I bring to the table. So that's been an interesting journey. I, I do remember early on when one beloved member of the community who was so supportive of my rabbinate and my leadership 
um, did make a comment that as soon as we were able, that we had to hire a male rabbi so that we could have someone with a little gravitas in the community. Mm -hmm. So I remember that. I mean, there is a sense that women and especially young women just do not have gravitas. We don't we don't look like what you imagine a rabbi ought to look like. And we're right now in this transitional moment, not only in my field, but in so many fields where our perception of what a judge looks like, what a surgeon looks like, what what a rabbi looks like is really shifting. And now, thankfully, you know, there's a whole generation of kids who are growing up who actually think that I'm what a rabbi looks like. Um, but but it takes time for these things to to shift. And I can only say that I, I believe that my experience as um, as a mother has very much shaped my rabbinate. And I'm also very aware that I want to be seen as a rabbi and not as a woman rabbi. I want to be seen as a teacher of Torah who brings all of my life experiences to bear when I'm when I'm teaching and when I'm standing present and being present with people in these most challenging moments. Um, for me, that's been very important. So if you're mentoring a, a young rabbi or a rabbinic student and that person is a is a woman or that versus a man, like, is there a different would you be talking to them about different things? I, I would be talking to every person I'm mentoring about different things because I really try to see them as individuals with certain gifts and certain struggles. And so, um, and, and there are some challenges and struggles that women face in this field that men rarely face. And, and I think in particular, this is true that, you know, the, the revelations of the past year and a half have certainly led us to deeper understanding about this, but that there really are very few work environments that are free of sexual harassment um, and free of a kind of uh, of a kind of pressure, uh, sexualized pressure. Um, I think that's really important for women rabbis in particular to be aware of, and something that we need to create the space for people to be able to um, to to work through. And also, and and so those conversations would certainly differ. Um, whether if the person I'm mentoring is is a woman or a man, but also, um, but but I think I think that that's really on a person to person basis that we we I look at the person who's before me and what are their talents and where are either the deficits or the challenges and how can we help grow the heart of this young of this young rabbi? I think probably um, you know. Priests and rabbis and all clergy are sort of thought of by uh, the rest of us as slightly as, as set apart as different and and but you're obviously human just like the rest of us when you and your like fellow rabbis are hanging out and talking about workplace issues like I would be hanging out and talking to fellow editors about workplace issues what are the things you guys are talking about I think the thing that comes up the most and that's the hardest is that we we give so much of ourselves. Um, there's so much. There's so much that we put out into the world, um, spiritually, intellectually, physically, running from you know from a funeral to the hospital to give a speech at city hall. Um, really putting our own. I, I mean, someone says. So, someone said to me like, well, "What do you do for your me time?" And I'm like, "What are you talking about? I don't even know what that means." So. You know, there's so much of the uh, of the per kind of personal um, that's put on the back burner for the work, and I think what's really and I do that with love, and and I feel incredibly blessed to be able to. But what what I think is one of the hardest pieces is that it's not enough. That there is such a spirit deficit in our society. There's a kind of spiritual anemia, and 
and people need to be seen and all for all the love that I can put into the world and that we can put into the world, there's not enough. And so I, I think that's hard because I'm doing as much as I can and I know that there's more needed. And so that's what we talk about. That's what we talk about a lot of the time. And how do you, how do you give what people need when you have, you know, at some point there's a limit to what we're able to walk into. And um, I, I only hope that, that we're able to bring a little bit of healing and a little bit of light um, in the work because that's, that's what brought me here in the first place and that's what drives me every day. Rabbi Russ, thank you so much for talking to me. This was really interesting and fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of Women in Charge. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find us. And please send feedback on the show and suggestions for guests to womenincharge at slate.com. Thanks to producers Jessica Jupiter and Cleo Levin. Thank you to Gabe Roth, editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And thank you all for listening. Thank you.